Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. Just one word to remind you about this book. I really would plead with you not to finish the book and think, well, Dominic says so, and he's a nice guy with a weird accent, so we'll go along with him. There's a method behind it. If somebody says, what, what do you, how do you know what Genesis 1 meant? You weren't there. The word I want to introduce, you probably know it, is matrix. Matrix, I explain it. I love it, first of all, because it comes from the same female root as mater, matter, Greek and Latin, mother. It's a mother image. Matrix is the background you cannot omit, the context you cannot avoid. Now, we're very good at avoiding context and background, but it would be like reading reading the Bible without matrix, and of course the matrix keeps changing. This afternoon the matrix is going to be the Roman Empire, whether we like it or not. It would be like saying, well, let's study Martin Luther King, but could we avoid all that negative stuff about American racism? Let's just talk about his dream and where he happened to be on a bridge one, one afternoon. He just happened to be there. Or could we talk about Gandhi but don't bring up the British Empire. You cannot do it. Well, I take it back. Of course you can do it. You can set out deliberately to avoid the context and the matrix and the background because that's where the bite is. So this afternoon, for example, I'm going to go back. I'm going to start again with, with the images. Again, thanks to Sarah for the cutouts or really delicate work in there, and I'm going to ask you to begin with the Roman Empire. And I'm going to say this very bluntly. If you don't know in general about the Roman Empire, no, you don't have to be a Roman historian. You really don't. You just have to have the general knowledge that you would have of the Roman Empire. You cannot understand the New Testament, Jesus, or Paul. You just cannot. The advantage of that, of course, is you can make up whatever you want. And if you like to play basketball without having a hoop, or tennis without a net, then that's great fun. But it really is not anything to do with what you're reading. So let me go back and I'll start with putting the matrix of the Roman Empire as the necessary background. Okay, I'm back here now. All right? All right, you can hear me okay? All right. Second lecture. I'm going to vibrate together two visions. Peace through victory or peace through justice. And you understand again that when I say justice, I'm always meaning distributive justice. Here's the question, the core question. And you see the image I have there on the left is Caesar the Augustus. You notice his right hand, he's got the orb of the world, he's got the whole world in his hand. And on the original of that statue, which is in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, there was a bronze victory. There was victory over the whole world. Bronze is too precious, of course, not to be melted down. On the other side, you will notice his left hand is holding the scepter, spear of command. And you notice what Jesus is doing. All he has is the book again, which he ain't reading, as I said. In fact, it's nicely clasped together. He is the meaning of the book, doesn't have to read it. 
Well, once upon a time, Sarah put that up on the internet with one of, one of my books in his hand. And, but he wasn't reading that either, actually. And of course, you notice the hand is raised in blessing. Now, the question. What is the difference between these identical titles? I didn't mean to do that, so let me get out of that. Okay, give me a second and I'll be back. All right, what is the difference between these two identical titles? Lord, divine, son of God, God incarnate, savior of the world, and even redeemer from sin. I put them all in quotation marks because these titles were the titles of Caesar before, literally before, Jesus was even born. So in one sense, the question we're asking, which is the basic question, is what happens when titles of the Roman emperor who lives on the Palatine Hill in Rome are taken from, are used for, whichever verb you want, for a Jewish peasant from the Nazareth Ridge in Galilee. Is this some type of a joke? And is that the whole problem between early Christianity and the Roman Empire, that they simply had no sense of humor? They didn't say they were, we were really just kidding. So, what happened when those titles are given to Caesar the Augustus, which they were, we can find all of them, or given to Jesus the Christ. So the same titles given to Caesar the Augustus or given to Jesus the Christ. For example, a title like Lord, Kyrios in Greek, Dominus in Latin, was quite all right. The Romans didn't mind if you used that for you, your little Lord. We all have our little Lords, they would have said. We all have our little gods. We don't even mind your little uh, sons of God. Just don't say it's the Son of God. So when Paul would float, as a word from saying our Lord Jesus Christ to the Lord Jesus Christ, the gap in between that is called treason. So here's my, the answer. Caesar versus Christ is the struggle between two visions for peace on earth. Two visions of peace on earth. One from Caesar, peace through victory. And I'm trying here to be absolute fair and not setting up straw people. Jesus, peace through justice. Again, of course, I'm talking about distributive justice. On Roman inscriptions all over the Mediterranean, the first title given to Caesar was usually abbreviated as IMP, imp, short for imperator, which we translate in English as emperor. And then we're kind of surprised when it says he was acclaimed emperor 13 or 15 times. Emperor meant conqueror. The title imperator meant conqueror. And when used of Caesar with that orb in his hand, it simply meant world conqueror. So you're looking at two radically profound different visions of how you obtain peace on earth. I'm not going to caricature and say the Roman Empire is all about war. Christianity is all about peace. That's just not, not true. It's two different ways of obtaining peace. So let me look for the, at the first example, part one, peace through victory. And I'm taking now just an example to show this to you. I could use dozens, quite frankly. We could use hours of examples. I want you to look at a scene in what the Romans called the Campus Martius, which was a bend in the Tiger, a floodplain, actually, called the Field of Mars, because that's where the legions drilled. Take a look at the bottom right-hand corner. I know you can't read the, the writing, that's just for me. The right, bottom right-hand corner 
is the mausoleum of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. That's where Caesar was buried. So very early, he got his mausoleum set, as it were. Now look over to the left-hand side. You see that road on the left-hand side, the long road going from north to south, as it were, up and down? That's the Via Flaminia. If you've ever been in Rome and you walked on the Corso, or you walked towards Piazza del Popolo, you were kind of on the Via Flaminia. It's the main north road out of Rome. So for many Europeans, it's the main road into Rome and out of Rome. Caesar, for example, Augustus, walked, marched with his legions in that Rome in 9 CE. 9 CE. And you see that tiny, look, looks like a little box, halfway up the left side. That's the altar of Augustan peace. Just listen to it. Not Roman peace, the Pax Romana, but Augustan peace. We'll talk more about this later. It's a working altar, a real altar. In other words, there's sacrifices that were offered there. But if you look at the transverse street, look over at the obelisk on the 23rd of September, the birthday of Caesar Augustus, the light shining from the top of that would go straight into the altar. So I can't emphasize enough that the Pax Romana was the Pax Augustana, the altar of Augustan peace, called in Latin, Arapacius Auguste. It's still there, it's been encased in a museum now, so it's been pretty much restored, reconstituted, not where it was, and on a north-south axis rather than an east-west. Here's what it looks like. In the center, you can see the altar. As I said, a working altar. You know that because there's holes down at the bottom for the blood to come out. And all around it is a carved, what would you call it, enclosure. And I want to look at the main images on that because it advertises, advertises clearly the Roman motto, legend of victory. We're much more inclined when we look at ancient works to watch the gleaming white marble. And if you walk in today to the Arapaches, Augusta, what you're going to see is gleaming white marble. But they've set up a system where with laser beams, they can actually, especially at night, say between 9 and 12 at night, when it is done, and let me assure you that whenever you go to Rome, it will not be the time it's going to be done. They have, they have an absolutely excellent program. They know when you're coming, and they'll have it the night before or the night after you leave. But it shows the, as it would have looked at the time, the colors are faithful to what we know from Pompeii. So you have to imagine this in color. Now, let me go back one step. You see on the front, that's the entranceway into the altar there, and on the left and the right, and imagine them on the back as well. So starting on the right-hand side front, then the left-hand side front, then the right side back and left side are the four great components of Rome's motto, peace through victory. What you have on the side there, the long side that you can see, is the imperial procession literally coming towards the front to offer sacrifice because Caesar is in there as well, Caesar Augustus. And then on the other side, you have the, the senatorial procession. So the first image, this would be to the right of the door as you walk in, advertises religion. The scene, restored here is best, by the way, all of this was restored and put back together. You see Aeneas, the Roman myth of origin was that the Trojan hero Aeneas had fled from Troy. He was the child of Venus Aphrodite and his father, and he had been warned to flee Troy before the destruction of Troy, flee all the way to Italy, and with him on the right, you can't see the second person, obviously is gone, is in Greek legend, his son Ascanius, who miraculously became his son Julius to be the progenitor, the ancestor of the Julian line. So according to their myths of origin, 
Aeneas took Julius, founder of the Julian line, Julius Caesar, to Italy, and the first thing they did on landing was offer sacrifice. And it was prophesied that they would see a sow with piglets, and that the first thing they should do is offer sacrifice. So this is their advertisement. First comes religion. You keep the favor of the gods first. With the favor of the gods on your side, we're moving now over to the second side, the left-hand side at the entrance, you go to war. With the gods on your side, you go to war. So after Aeneas come Romulus and Remus. Of course, that's where Rome, the name Rome comes from. They are the children of Mars, the god Mars, who you see on the left. They're suckled by the she-wolf, the second myth of origins, and they're found eventually by a shepherd who is on the right. And you can see the, the eagle of Rome, looking a bit like a vulture, actually, but that might be a question of taste. Going back now to the third side, you've had religion, war. On the third side, you have victory. It's always symbolized by the goddess Roma. She's always a goddess, and she's seated on the arms of her conquered enemies. That's the symbol of victory, the pile of arms. To her left on our screen is the Senate, represented the Senate, and to the right is the people. So you'd have the Senatus Populus Que Romanus, and by the way, you'd know as soon as Rome starts talking about the Senate and the people, they were no longer of any importance whatsoever. Sort of almost like politicians, the more they talk about the people, you know, the less they're intending to do anything for them. So by the time the populace and the, the Senate and people were being depicted, the emperor was what counted. Finally, the last one is peace. So we looked at religion, war, victory, peace. And this, in a way, is the most beautiful and luckily the most uh, not destroyed. It shows a woman seated safely. She's safe from rape, which is the first product of war for women. And her children are safe from being enslaved. So they're seated happily on her lap, on her, well, to the left of our screen is the sky, which is at peace. You can see the bird holding up the symbol of the sky. And on the other side, the sea is at peace. So you can see the sea creature as we're holding up the symbol of the sea. And down below, the animals are well-fed and safe. So this is their symbol of peace. So religion, war, victory, and peace, those are the component parts of peace through victory. And please understand just how powerful this was. We'll talk more about it when I go back up to the front. I want to look now at the alternative, part two, peace through justice. Moving slightly from the life of Jesus towards the death of Jesus. Let me put it this way. If we only had, no, let me put it another way. Pilate is the most accurate interpreter, interpretation of Jesus in the entire New Testament. Pilate. From his Roman point of view, he got it exactly right. Because Rome punished those who promoted violent resistance differently from those who promoted nonviolent resistance. Of course, they punished both of them, but they punished them differently so you can work backwards from what happened to what they thought they were doing. If you're dealing with violent revolution, those who took up arms against it, Rome's policy was to execute the leader and as many of his major followers as you could get arrested and sort of to crucify them all in a row so people would get the message. Famously, they had crucified Spartacus and his main followers all the way from Capua to Rome. But the point was, if you see a row of crucifixions, you know violent revolution. We know this from Barabbas. A man named Barabbas was imprisoned with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. From the Roman point of view, they were violent rebels. 
from the Jewish point of view, there could be freedom fighters. Now, for nonviolent revolution, not for nonviolence, but for nonviolent revolution, and I've changed that. I used to say for nonviolent resistance, but what Jesus is advocating is a revolution, really, rather than just resistance. That nonviolence is not just something we're doing because hey, we, anything else won't work. It's a program. Nonviolent resists a revolution. Rome executed only the leader. This had nothing to do with forgiveness or mercy. It was simply their policy was, why bother? If it's nonviolent resistance, we take out the leader and they'll get the message. And if they're still around five years from now, we'll take out the next leader until you finally get it. It was not freedom of thought or anything like that. It was simply was, why would you waste iron nails and a squad of soldiers and expert executioners more than you have? So for nonviolent revolution, therefore, if you read Tacitus, beginning of the second century, Josephus, end of the first century, respectively Roman and Jewish historians, when they tell you that Jesus was crucified, but his followers were not even arrested, you know immediately that from the Roman point of view, this is nonviolent resistance. Here's the Roman law, and it's civil law. The authors of sedition and tumult are those who stir up the people shall, according to their rank, I love this one, according to their rank, either be crucified, thrown to wild beasts, or deported to an island. It's never quite been clear to me why being deported to a Greek island is a penalty, but then I've never been there in the winter, so maybe it's different. But obviously, if you're an aristocrat, we will not crucify you or throw you to the wild beasts because that will tell people that they die just like anyone else and might give them ideas. So they get deported to an island, but ordinary people would be crucified or thrown to the wild beasts. The presumption would be that this destroys you completely. And that's Roman law. There's no really law what you do with violent resistance. That's your job description. You kill them. Sorry, I hit the wrong one again. <laughs> Therefore, this is my conclusion, Jesus was executed without his followers for nonviolent revolution. He's advocating a completely different way of handling Rome's Mediterranean globalization. I mentioned that this morning. Don't think of an empire as just grabbing land. They're grabbing it for economic reasons. It's globalization. And I'm not trying to use that just to be with it and use a modern term. As we'll see in the talk, it was Roman globalization. You can mock it, of course, and say it's not the globe, but he's got the globe in his hand, remember. So, comparing them, we're talking about religion, war, victory, peace. That is the Roman mantra, the Roman slogan, the Roman program, the Roman triumph. And then on the other side, religion, yep, nonviolence, justice, and peace. Again, as always, justice means distributive justice and peace. Okay, so it comes down to the two programs, peace through victory, peace through justice. And I'm thinking of these as like the tectonic plates down below history the same way as you have tectonic plates below the earth, as we know, shifting all the time. These are the, the tectonic plates of human evolution. So Caesar would have said, peace through victory. We, we didn't invent this. We just got good at it. That's the way of the world. That's the way of... It's always been like that. What do you think the Assyrians, Babylonians, all the rest of them were doing? We just got really good at it. So to a Jesus or a Paul, you've said, well, what's the alternative? How, how can there be an alternative? This is, this is the way of the world. And that's why they call that way this world 
the world of civilization, and they're talking about the world of creation, they might say. Okay. So I will stop there. So the only thing now to do is unpack that, basically unpack that in more detail. Let me start with the Roman Empire, first of all. Two things you have to know. The first is this. They invented a whole new way of being an empire. We already saw that the Persians had invented a new way. Rome did them even better. Rome's idea was this. Empires before were what you might call tribute empire. We'll run the world or whatever, we, and you pay your taxes and everything's fine. We let you run your own affairs. Persian Empire would let a, a Jewish governor, say for example, run it. Just pay your taxes, that's all you have to do. We'll protect you. From what? Well, from somebody else who might rob you. We'll rob you, but protect you from everyone else. It, it's a lovely system, actually. Now, Rome came up with one better. Instead of having the army sitting around in Rome, or the outskirts, ready to move wherever it's needed, what if we put the army on the periphery? We put it on the periphery. We put it on the Rhine, on the Danube, on the Euphrates, and on the North African littoral. And inside that cordon sanitaire, everything will be peaceful. It was a brilliant idea. They had invented territorial empire. They had invented bases, B-A-S-E-S, -E on the Rhine, on the Danube, on the Euphrates. Do you think we invented it? That's why you would never see in a Roman city soldiers beating up people. No, in Alexandria or Antioch or Rome or Marseille, you, what you would see, Tarragona, you would see peace. It was brilliant. And I can't really emphasize that enough so you understand when somebody like Paul talked about peace, the obvious answer to him from a well-minded, well open, was, but, but Paul, we have peace. How can this, this Jesus, whoever, bring peace? We got it. So somehow they're going to have to see, we must be talking about a different type of peace. So anyway, so the first thing is the invented territorial empire. Keep the military on your periphery. Nobody ever thought of that before. Now it's expensive, of course. So who's going to pay for it? Globalization because inside this periphery, the boom booms. Second thing, so that's the first thing you have to know about the Roman Empire, the invention of territorial empire. Second thing, scholars all think of imperial power, not, well, let me think. Imagine a ship attached to the shore with a giant hawser, a giant rope, and inside that rope, there's four strands. And if each strand is strong and twisted together, you really get tremendous strength. So imperial power is a hawser or a rope composed of four types of power. Four. The first one, of course, is military power. That's kind of obvious. That's the legions. They weren't there for decoration. A legion at full complement would be about 5,000 fighting engineers. That's the best description. Josephus tells us about what they carried, and most of the stuff they carried were not weapons, but construction tools. They were into infrastructure. And if you told the legion, we just don't do infrastructure, they would have said, eh. Once you get peace, of course you do infrastructure. So that's military power, okay? Now, what's that infrastructure, which would be all-weather ports, 
all-weather ports, all-weather roads, all-weather bridges. Now, the temples and the, the circuses, that'll all come later with the cities, but first of all, you get the infrastructure. And the infrastructure of there is, is there, of course, for the legions to move. They're not there for decoration. They're there for the legions to move. And they have to be all-weather. The, the Persians had roads, too, across the empire. And when it rained, they had mud across the empire. And you can't move troops over mud. Well, you can, but it'll slow them down a bit. So Rome wanted all-weather roads and then all-weather bridges so they don't get washed away. And we can calculate exactly how long it will take to get the 10th Legion from A to B. And so can you, if you start anything. So that's military power. Now, economic power. Once that infrastructure is in there for military power, of course it can be used for economic power. Of course. And the, let me get this right, the mines in Spain that smelted copper, to have copper and to have silver from copper, have been found in ice cones in Iceland. In fact, you can almost read the ice cones is it going well with the Roman Empire, depending how much metallic stuff is in the air at that year, are going bad with the Roman Empire because it ain't there. They're having a civil war or something. So smelting, that's economic power. Political power. Political power means how many people are following you. If you're the leader of the free world, you look over your shoulder and for nobody there, you ain't. Now, for example, if I'm the richest person in Antioch, or the richest person in Alexandria, or Ephesus, I could be given the honor of being a member of the Roman Senate. Wow. Do I commute regularly? Of course not. Of course not. But this gives me a sense of I belong to the Roman Empire. Not just to the aristocracy of Ephesus, the aristocracy empire. That is political power. If you don't have it, you don't have it. And all the military power in the world won't make it. <clears throat> Imagine, for example, if a prime minister, Pitt, for example, in the British Empire, during the British Empire, had said, you know, we found this brilliant um, Indian and we're thinking of making him prime minister. They wouldn't even find that funny. If you did the equivalent in the Roman Empire, they would say, sure. We found this brilliant Spaniard, or this brilliant North African, and we're thinking of, of moving him up through the ranks, and he might become emperor. Sure. That's political power. Not even marred by racism, as long as you become Roman, of course. Now, the fourth one. When I was reading all of this stuff, first of all, the sociology of empire, I was kind of, my eyes were glazing over. I said, this is lobby. I don't see how it has anything to do with Jesus. They didn't have military power, they didn't have political power, they didn't have economic power. And then they brought up ideological power, the fourth component. Now, they said ideological because that's what people do who don't want to say theological. But of course it's theological. The ideology is, is based on the gods. Ideological power. Now, I want to make an aside here. Where I really began to understand that this is absolutely correct was on 9-11. Because the terrorists that attacked us on 9-11 did not set out primarily, primarily to kill Americans. They set out to go after the four great components of imperial power. Military, the Pentagon. Economic, the Twin Towers. Political, the Capitol building. That's where that plane was going that came down in Pennsylvania, was brought down in Pennsylvania. It's going for the Capitol. And then I thought, ideological. How, how could they, how could they attack our ideology? And I figured, that's what terror does. It terrifies you enough to change your ideology or your theology. You change, you become like them. That's, okay, anyway, that's an aside. But. When I, when I was reading this theological, 
I suddenly began to see why Caesar Augustus, why, why the divinity of the empire was not, I mean, sometimes reading it, people made it sound like, well, this is just court protocol. You know, you have to kind of brown nose the emperor and call him your godship or your son of godship or whatever, just, just to keep him happy. No, this was the ideological glue that held the Roman Empire together. The emperor was divine. So let me, let, me, let me unpack that a little, please. Because it kind of makes me want to scream if I see a book. How could Caesar, how could Jesus be God? Well, wait a minute. The first thing you have to say is before Jesus ever was born, Caesar was already God. So they had figured out some way that a human being could be divine. And if we can't like it, that's our problem. So what's going on? Here's what's going on. In Greco-Roman theology, trying to figure out the relationship between the gods, plural, the gods and the goddesses, and human beings down here, they imagined that the eternal gods, say, for example, Aphrodite, who's a goddess, daughter of Jupiter, she could come down to Earth to a Trojan shepherd called Anchises and produce a divine child, Aeneas. Okay, so the gods could come down, they could put on human uh, appearances and do whatever they wanted. Were they human? Of course not. That would be like you or I putting on Halloween costume. Doesn't make us a pirate or whatever. We're just played. Now, on the other hand, here's to be careful. In the Greco-Roman world, what a human being, I mean a real human being, had done something of extraordinary value for the human race, or at least for our little human race here. Aesculapius, for example, he'd invented medicine. Wow! Did that not manifest the, the kindness of God? So he's divine. So a human being, usually we're male, to be honest, but theoretically it could be male or female, a human being, this is, here, here's the job description, who had done something of extraordinary value for the human race, or at least for our little part of it, and thereby manifested some aspect of God, is called divine. That's their language. It wouldn't be mine, to be honest with you. I might give him a Nobel Prize or something, call him a genius. But if we were debating with a first century Roman and said, well, we wouldn't call somebody like that divine, they would say, well, what would you call somebody like that? Somebody who had brought, done something of magnificent value for the human race, what would you call him? And we kind of stutter and say, well, we might call him a genius or something like that. They say, well, that's your language, this is ours. So let me focus then on Caesar Augustus. What does it mean to say he's divine? He's the son of God? He's God incarnate. It means this. Back to the Roman Empire. Their systems seem to have been marvelous. They'd invented this territorial empire. It looks really good. And then they discovered something. They were a republic. They were a republic. That is, they were run by the Senate. The Senate and the people, but, you know, the Senate really ran it. Then what happened was two members of the Senate, oh, sorry, I should say, they said, we won't have kings. We won't have presidents, as it were, or kings, because they always take over. We'll have two people in, we call them consuls, and they'll run for a year. So it's like having, as if we had two presidents in for a year, one in the West Wing, one in the East Wing, and each you keep an eye on the other. They'll both be out after a year, and we say, how could anyone do that much damage in a year? Okay, moving right along. But it seemed to be working. Two consuls for a year. What happened? Caesar went west and took all of Gaul, took so much silver that <laughs> depleted the price in Rome. Pompey went all the way east and took the east. And the two of them glowered at one another from either end of the Mediterranean and said, eh, I'm not coming back to obey you. So Rome was the first one who found out that you can have a republic or you can have an empire 
but you can't have both at the same time for long. So Pompey and Caesar, this would be Julius Caesar, of course, launched into civil war. They thought they had really worked it out so they could have no tyranny, and instead they got anarchy. <laughs> I'm not going to draw any parallels here, intelligent people. But they went to civil war. And for, imagine our civil war, four years, imagine it had lasted 20 years. So from about the year 50 BCE to the year 30 in round numbers, they had round after round of on again, off again civil war. Ripped the Mediterranean apart. Actually, most of the big battles were fought in Greece, which is much more convenient than having it in Italy, which ruins your own home country. Have it in Greece. Then, in the year 2nd of September, 31 BCE, the last round in 20 year, years of civil war, he wasn't Caesar Augustus yet, he was just Octavian and his fleet against Antony and backed, of course, by Cleopatra. The fleets of Antony and Cleopatra off the coast, the Ionian Sea off the coast of Greece came out to war. Well, they came out to fly, actually. They came out for flight. They never even fought, possibly. At the end of the day, Caesar Augustus, I'll give him his title, Caesar the Augustus, was the winner. It was over. And all across the Roman Empire, the, the Roman globalization, you could hear the sigh of relief. Thank God, it's over. Wait a minute, who are we thanking? Yeah, Jupiter, whatever. But Augustus, if Augustus is not God, put a bit crudely, what do we need them for? As Horace said, well, we know Jupiter is a god in heaven because we hear his thunders, and we know that, that Caesar is god on earth because he sees his victories. Well, what do you want, Rome? Victories or thunders? So when they said Caesar is divine, it meant because he has brought, here we go again, peace through victory. And they meant it in the most concrete sense. In a, one sense, don't push this too far, he was like their Lincoln. The Civil War was over, really over. He was smart enough, for example, to pay off his troops and Antony's troops as well and send them all happily somewhere else. Now, that's theological power. That's the Roman Empire. The question is, how could anyone even imagine, and I really mean imagine, an alternative? And that's what's coming out of that Old Testament tradition of justice for the world. There is, in the Old Testament tradition, an alternative vision. Of course there is. That someday, in days to come, at the end of days, there will be peace on earth. Now, hear it. Remember that in, uh, what is it, Micah chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 2, one of those few places in the Bible where they kind of have the same quotation. They'll beat their swords into, into um, pruning hooks. And, no, swords and plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They will do it. There's nothing there, but God will do it for you. It says, God will put an end to war because they will beat their swords into so they had this vision of peace on earth coming through justice. Now, as we saw, it could easily be contaminated by God's going to do it with superior <laughs> victory. Of course, it could be contaminated. But the vision is an alternative vision. Now, come to Jesus. Take this down from global stuff. From, imagine this, this magnificent vision of peace on earth, all the gorgeous stuff in the Old Testament. How does it come down and to quote Shakespeare, take on a local habitation and a name? Let me take you to the first century and to Galilee. What time do we start, by the way? About, about 12.30? About 12, okay, so I'll stop for you soon. To Galilee. Jesus knows this whole gorgeous tradition. He knows it, everyone knows it. But what's happening in Galilee is Romanization. 
Jesus is born during the Romanization of his homeland, the first steps of Romanization. You could say it began about 60 BCE. He has an alternative. Obviously, this is not peace on earth the way they have imagined it in his tradition. What's he going to do? Obviously, he could take arms against it. That was one of the alternatives. There was another alternative, nonviolent resistance, which was used also not just by Jesus. He didn't invent nonviolent resistance. But the program that he advocated in Galilee when Antipas was Romanizing Galilee spread from Herod the Great to Galilee under Antipas and the commercialization of the lake. If you've ever wondered, what's Jesus doing over there by the lake? Why doesn't he live in Nazareth? What's he doing over there in Capernaum? Why are his first most important followers all seem to come from fishing villages? Mary of Magdala, the biggest fishing village until Antipas plunked Tiberius right down there next to it as his capital city. Antipas is getting with the Roman system, the economic globalization. He is commercializing what they call the Sea of Galilee, which will now be the Sea of Tiberius. The traction, the traction that Jesus gets for his whole movement, the Kingdom of God movement, takes off, thank you Antipas, for commercializing the lake and giving me traction. This is not right. We were able to go down to the lake before. We could have our own boats if we could afford one. We could, we could fish. So why is there so much fishy stuff in the gospel? Why are all his first followers fishers? Because this is part of Romanization, globalization, coming down to Israel, coming down to northern Israel, finally hitting the north under Antipas. The foundation of Tiberias and the commercialization of the lake is the launch pad for Jesus. Otherwise, he could say everything he wanted to say and everyone could say, yeah, yeah, sure. What happens that takes him to Jerusalem? As far as I can see, this is where we have to interpret what happens. His followers in Jerusalem said to him, come to Jerusalem, we can keep you safe because what you should do is go out every evening to Bethany. Look at the map. You leave Jerusalem, you go around the Mount of Olives to Bethany. You can be safe here at night. And during the day, your followers will protect you. Jesus was crucified not because the Romans were savages, because it took them a certain amount of time to figure out how to get him at night. And, to use Josephus's summary, the first men among us, that would be the high priests who were opposing Jesus, as it said quite repeatedly, turned them over to the Romans. And the Romans did exactly what we would expect them to do, they crucified him, and made no attempt whatsoever to round up his chief followers, his closest followers. Why bother? This is not what we do with nonviolent resistance. So the program of Jesus, just to take it up to that point, fits perfectly into the Roman system, into the Jewish system within the Roman system, and into Romanization. And you cannot really understand Jesus except within Judaism, within Romanization. You can't just pop in Pilate at the last minute. He's been there all the time. So, the program from Jesus, I'm going to say this. If I didn't have any of the New Testament whatsoever, if I simply had Tacitus, Josephus, and they both tell me that Pilate crucified or executed Jesus, and they both tell me nothing about being uh, arresting his followers, I would know from the Roman point of view, this Jesus, whoever he is, let's say I'm just reading Josephus, whoever he is, was executed for nonviolent resistance to the Roman system. Now, I wouldn't know anything else. I wouldn't know, for example, that Jesus had said in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the reason I do this 
is because that's the way God is, because God brings the sun up on the just and the unjust and brings the rain and the good and the bad. And that's not a punitive God, that's a distributive God. So Jesus backs his own program into God. He doesn't say, well, you know, we can't attack the legion, so let's, let's play it cool and do nonviolent resistance. Let's not get killed. Perfectly reasonable position, but it's not the position. So, the final word I want to say, the extraordinary thing that Jesus says, the most extraordinary word he ever used, is love your enemies. And immediately we kind of want to focus on love and say, how can you love your enemies? Love is sort of an emotional attachment. Maybe it just means, like Exodus says, if you find your, your enemy's donkey in the ditch, take him out. Maybe that's all he means. Why would Jesus say, love your enemies? Why didn't he say, love everyone? Or he saw Leviticus, love your neighbor, love the um, resident alien. Why would he say, love your enemies? Because love your enemies is the same way as advocating nonviolent resistance. That is how you love your enemies. You resist them nonviolently. So the extraordinary thing about that saying is that Jesus seems to presume there will be enemies. Because what he is advocating, nonviolent resistance, is against the normalcy of civilization. If it was just against Rome, we could say, well, Rome's gone, forget it. But Rome, peace through victory, was not a Roman invention. What they invented was how to do it really well. So love your enemies is another way of saying nonviolent resistance against violence. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.